get the load I'm hauling. Hard work, I hit it harder. Ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer. Sun up to sundown, backing up traffic all the way to town. Camo hat and a farmer's tan. Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group, your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Well, welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, coming to you live from my basement, but we're not going to stop. We're awful glad you're here. On this episode, we bring you the latest on challenges being faced by the agriculture industry in light of the coronavirus pandemic. We hear from American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duvall, as well as farmers who stand to be affected by a shortage of immigrant workers coming in from Mexico. We'll also hear from ag economist David Widmar, who looks at COVID-19's impact from an economic standpoint. Finally, we'll take you to Hank Snow's iconic Rainbow Ranch in Madison, Tennessee, for the music of our friend Bobby Tomberlin, which is just what we need in moments such as these. You won't want to miss a moment of it. Let's go. Well, first up this week on Fast Line Fast Track, last week we heard from American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duvall on a number of issues surrounding COVID-19. The most pressing of those was the immediate need for temporary agricultural workers under the H-2A visa program. In light of the pandemic, the State Department has halted the visa process in Mexico, making for some tense moments for American farmers. The day our last episode was released, Duvall and some of the farmers who likely will be affected by that decision spoke to the media. I want to bring you some of their insights now. For We'll hear from President Duvall, followed by Arizona produce farmer John Boltz and South Carolina produce farmer Chalmers Carr. Bottom line is, guys, we got to fix this problem. If we don't, we're going to face another shock several months from now down the road. Uh, we are engaged in ongoing dialogue with, uh, with the administration, including the White House and the State Department and USDA. We're real proud of our secretary. He has picked up the torch for agriculture and has worked real hard help us go down the road trying to find solutions to this. We're going to make sure that our farmers get workers that they need uh, so that they can uh, so the supply chain can remain open. So next, we want to hear from John Boltz, who's a produce farmer from Yuma, Arizona. Uh, yeah, I farm down here in the southwest corner of Arizona. We farm fresh produce uh, throughout the winter months, and we supply uh, the vast majority, our area down here, in Yuma, Arizona, supplies the vast majority of the United States and Canada with their winter vegetables like lettuce, broccoli, cauliflower, that sort of thing. And uh, we've been increasingly uh, uh, dependent on using the H-2A program to fill the gaps that we lack uh, due to Congress not taking action over the last three decades to uh, improve our labor laws and our immigration laws so that agriculture would have an adequate workforce. At present, we're concerned um, about the ongoing ability of producers to have adequate H-2A workers. Uh, As we all know, it's a nine-month seasonal uh, program trying to fill seasonal gaps. Unfortunately, most of agriculture is year-round. When we're done harvesting here in the Yuma area in a couple of weeks, harvest of those same vegetables happens in the Salinas Valley of California and in other areas around the country. And uh, like our area uh, that uses between three and 8,000 H-2A workers per year right here in my community, uh, areas across the country, as you mentioned, President Duvall used uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of workers to get the job done uh, since uh, 
the domestic population typically does not uh, join us in the fields to do that work. And now we want to hear from Chalmers Carr, the owner, president, and CEO of Titan Farms. He's a first-generation peach farmer from Ridge Spring, South Carolina, who purchased his operation in 2001 and leased the farm two years prior. He started with 175 H-2A workers and then grew that number to 817 last year. The importance of the H-2A worker to our farm is very important, and it is to our industry in the southeast and peaches, as every peach commercial peach operator is an H-2A user. Um, we had to go to the H-2A program because of lack of domestic for- workforce that wanted to do these jobs. To be clear on that, last year we advertised actually for over 1,200 visa jobs because we also have a fall um, vegetable deal as well. And in doing that, we had seven Americans, U.S. workers, actually apply for those 1,200 positions. So. Without the H-2A program, we would not be able to do what we do. Currently on the farm, we have 390 H-2A workers. Um, I'm very proud to share with you that we actually crossed 68 last night. They're en route on buses to our farm, and there was no issue at the consulate. But I am very fortunate in that regard because all the workers coming back to my farm this year are returning workers, and the vast majority of them, 99% of those, are eligible for the visa waiver. So with the current situation with the State Department in Mexico, they are still processing um, returning workers. But that does still present a challenge for the rest of the country as this program has been growing 15 to 20 percent a year and not every worker returns. So there are still going to be a lot of positions unfilled because we cannot bring any new workers into the country. For us, with the 390 that we have plus the ones coming here, that will be about half of our um, labor force, about 55 percent of our need. Um, as mentioned earlier, this is a critical time of year where crops are going in the, round, in the ground. So we also grow bell pepper and broccoli, and they're being planted currently. It takes about one-third of the labor force to grow and cultivate a crop. It takes another two-thirds to pack and ship that crop and harvest that crop. So if these crops are not planted in a timely manner, then it's going to have a ripple effect all the way through the supply chain. On the peach side of things, we have enough workers here to prune our crop, which is what we're doing now. And then we will be able to thin our crop. But with the current numbers we have, there is no way that we would be able to harvest and pack our crop, not even at 50 percent of our crop level. So we are very concerned on the economic impact of that. My company has grown to about a $50 million in sales company a year. So you can imagine that if I did not have my workers here, what impact it would have not only on us personally, but on the local communities that we support in the state of South Carolina, where we're the second largest farmer in the state. So. Um, we're very hopeful that we will be able to keep the borders open for all of our farmers, but people need to be aware that if for some reason or another we were not able to bring these work, workers in, there would be a major disruption in our supply chain of fresh fruits and vegetables as this has become quite a bit of our workforce. And again, the work, the work that is done in these months, um, May, March, April, May, is very important to what happens the rest of the summer. Well, this is a large, ongoing issue, so we'll keep you updated as developments occur. The labor issue is just one piece of the puzzle in terms of how the agriculture industry is being affected by COVID-19. Next, we hear from David Whitmar, an agriculture economist and co-founder of Agricultural Economic Insights. David's one of the agriculture industry's premier economists, and you can check out his observations at AEI.ag. He and AEI co-founder Brent Gloy have been hard at work trying to decipher how COVID-19 is going to affect the agriculture industry both in the short and long term. David, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. 
Uh, thanks for having us. So we talked at the beginning of the year, as we've done the past couple of years here, just to get kind of an outlook on on the year. And uh, we, we highlighted some of the challenges already being faced in the agriculture industry. And as if we needed any more, along comes the coronavirus, COVID-19. And now uh, we've got a whole new set of challenges, in, including some real unknowns here. You know, that's um, it's pretty rare um, that we have something that happens as significant and as large and as disruptive as COVID-19, but also the the pace at which it unraveled. And so we were looking back, you know, a month ago, actually uh, around February 20th is when the stock market first started to uh, be in the price this in here in the U.S. And so uh, it's been a wild month. It's going to be a wild uh, next few weeks and, and next few months. And so uh, the magnitude and the pace of this has just been uh, really um, I guess three words that I hope we've been hearing a lot are, are black swan, uncharted territory, and unprecedented. And I think those sum up uh, what's happened over the last month pretty well. And so as we delve into this, there are a lot of unknowns and we don't want to get wildly speculative, but you and your business partner, Brent Gloy, have had a chance to dig into this and put together a really good blog post here recently. Tell us about some of the highlights of it. So we outlined four key questions for decision makers to think about. And so right now, you know, a lot has happened, but how do you get to sort through and how do you begin to make businesses, decisions for your businesses and for your livelihoods? So we focus on potential macroeconomic impacts. Where do commodity prices go for agriculture? What are the implications for de- uh, the demand of ag products? And what are potential supply chain hiccups? And so those are the four areas that we think decision makers should focus on the most uh, here at the end of uh, a month of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So if you don't mind, let's walk through each of those and, and give me a couple highlights of each of those bullet points. The first one here are the macroeconomic issues or the potential macroeconomic issues. And any conversation around the macroeconomy here in 2020 needs to be sliced up into different time frames. And so in the uh, short run, the big question is, what is the duration and magnitude of the economic impacts of social distancing? So how long does this continue to play out, and how severe does this continue to be? And as an example, it's outside of ag, but this captures the magnitude of what's been going on. There's pretty much no uh, car manufacturing going on in the United States right now. All the car manufacturers have pretty much stopped uh, building cars at this point. Um, so thinking about, you know, quarter two, which is where we are here in, uh, or I guess we're wrapping up the first quarter, quarter two is where we're going to be going at. A lot of the economic forecasts are declines of maybe 25% in GDP. Those are some of the conservative estimates. Some of the more wild ones are much larger than that. Shifting to the intermediate run, this is what we're thinking will be uh, sort of the economy reopening after we get through peak concerns around COVID-19. When does the economy start to reopen? That'll be summer and fall. And just as we're going to see dramatic slowdowns uh, from the economy uh, in the shutdown now, we're going to see rapid expansion. So there's going to be this whiplash of economic indicators that are going to be hard to keep an eye on. Also worth noting, in the next few weeks, we're going to really start to see the details around uh, how 
Congress how the Federal Reserve are going to stimulate the economy, and we're going to start to see how the impacts of that work or those efforts are going to play out. And finally, for the economy, we got to think about the longer run. Where is the U.S. economy going to be uh, 12 to 18 months from now? One thing is certain at this point, uh, this is not going to revert to the economy that we were at just a few months ago. And so the actions being taken uh, to stimulate the economy will have an impact, as well as the shutdown of almost you know, two or three weeks now. Uh, will have impacts as well. So there are three measures that we're watching. Exchange rates, so far the dollar has strengthened, which is a headwind for exports, and that'll be something to keep an eye on for ag products. Watching interest rates. So while the Federal Reserve has moved to lower the short-term interest rates, we've actually seen longer-term interest rates, such as the 10-year Treasury, the 30-year Treasury, turn higher in recent weeks. So that's going to be interesting to keep an eye on. And finally, inflation will be with lots of economic uh, activity uh, lead to higher rates of inflation. So uh, those are the three majors that are worth keeping an eye on uh, over the next year. One of the big things that uh, I know we've heard from the Farm Bureau and others is the just the, the pressing and imminent need uh, for H-2A workers. And I, I know uh, with uh, the State Department closing down visa applications for uh, immigrant workers from Mexico, uh, you've got a real challenge here as we get into planting season. And uh, depending on how long this thing drags on, um, maybe through uh, even into harvest season, uh, do do you guys have any kind of idea what uh, implication that could have on the market? You know, it's interesting because we were actually moving forward on some legislation to modernize the ag workforce uh, in February. So this is an exact, it's a Corona, COVID-19 would be an exacerbation of an already challenging workforce environment. So unfortunately, it's sort of a, a perfectly bad storm for the labor markets, especially for those that are um, relying on seasonal workers. And so, um, you know, we got to play this out. And again, this short run, intermediate run, and long run. You mentioned harvest, and so if you're uh, in the West, harvesting the fall. But if you're uh, in California or Florida or those other parts of the U.S., you're thinking about harvest already for some of your, you know, vegetable produce crops. Mm-hmm. And so this is uh, an issue on the labor. I think another labor issue we got to think about is how do we keep our ag labor workforce healthy? Mm-hmm. And so we want to make sure that we don't have. Um, you know, uh, for example, a, a meat processing or meat packing plant uh, have an outbreak. We don't want to see large uh, produce operations having an outbreak. And you, as an individual producer, don't want to lose an employee or two during this very busy planting season. And so it's a very, I guess it's, it's, its impacts are, are, are wide-ranging, and each producer needs to think about uh, potential labor workforce risks. Uh, in the next few months. And, you know, I think, you know, just one particular family member um, quarantining or or unfortunately getting COVID-19 and needing to be sidelined for a few weeks could have a really big impact for even uh, corn and soybean producers in the Midwest. Well, one of the things that we talked about early in the year was the Phase 1 China Agreement and also USMCA. Both of those things were were close to uh, crossing the finish line when we talked. Uh, Both of those have have advanced since then, and I I keep seeing releases coming out from the USDA talking about uh, next steps and uh, maybe rightly so through all this madness. Uh, they're trying 
to still work through details on both of those fronts to, to keep things moving. So once all this blows over, uh, we are going to be showing some progress both on China and USMCA. How big of an impact could that have on things? So uh, USMCA for ag, uh, the impacts for that are going to be um, uh, not, as, not very significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of a disaster averted scenario. Uh, if you're a dairy producer, those are going to be um, a little more impactful for your operation. Of course, produce will have, uh, depending on the produce itself, has a little different impact. Um, so Canada, you know, the U.S. ratified it. Canada just ratified it in the midst of COVID-19, so it got buried in the headlines. Those negotiators uh, are still working out details. And so we're going to see another um, two or three or four rounds of press releases saying another milestone has been met. And so probably... Um, you know, I think COVID-19 slows down progress on that a little bit, but we're going to start to see late summer, early fall, maybe some of the rules and regulations that are necessary here in the U.S. to meet those obligations will start to come to the forefront. So the impacts of that will start to be felt late 2020. Um, your other point was the phase one trade agreement with China. I think this highlights a, a really important point to keep in mind in the ag economy is you know, just a few weeks ago, we were thinking about what are the upside potentials from China coming back and, and at least buying what they were buying before the trade war started and maybe uh, meeting these promises of huge increases. That's a, a very bullish uh, thing in the market. The second issue that was related was African swine fever, which decimated the uh, pork production in China, or some opportunities for U.S. meats to step in and, and um, fill that market. So there were a lot of optimistic stories that were out there in U.S. agriculture just a few weeks ago. Now they've been overshadowed by COVID-19, but those issues are still there. So we need to keep an eye on China and how China's buying plays out over the next three, four, five months and the rest of 2020, frankly. And I will ask the question, does China get back to where they were pre-trade war levels, which would be almost double the activity the last two years? That would be positive development for the ag economy. And do they, you know, exceed those pre-trade war levels, which was outlined as a phase one trade agreement? So that could also be positive. So, again, it's really important not to get too tunnel vision focused on the COVID-19 situation. It is a huge story. It is going to be have severe implications, but it's not the only factor out there in the global agricultural marketplace. Well, it's going to be interesting. I'm glad you brought that up about African swine fever, because that was kind of our COVID-19 before uh, the whole coronavirus epidemic um, broke out, and everybody was watching to see how all that was going to play out, and it seemed like that was starting to escalate, and you, you really are not hearing much about that right now. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely gone to the back of the the back of the media cycle. Uh, the thing we were thinking about is does the U.S. have a potential risk of uh, an outbreak of African swine fever? And those risks have probably declined quite a bit uh, due to the COVID-19 uh, measures that are in place. So less travel between the U.S. and less trade between the U.S. and China. So that's probably reduced the risk of outbreak here or outbreak in the EU. Um, but that the impacts are still being felt in China. They're still making uh, adjustments there. Um, you know, the other side of the story, that's the optimistic side, the other side of the story, the last time we had a big income shock in the U.S. back in the Great Recession, U.S. consumers on a per capita basis consumed less meat, less chicken, less uh, pork, 
less beef. And so we got to keep an eye on where does, what do U.S. consumers, uh, how do they adjust their diets uh, if incomes start to be impacted? And so uh, a lot of unknowns around that. But, you know, it's really important to keep in mind the whole host of uh, factors that are in play. Well, and on top of that, as we sit here sheltering in place, just kind of staring out the window, uh, I know where I'm at and I guess where you're at here in Indiana, uh, looking out and seeing a lot of rain, which can't be uh, uh, great on the minds of producers getting ready to get out into the fields. You know, that's another, you know, right now the markets have been focused on this. Um, so I guess all the markets have been down, a lot of uncertainty in those markets, but the U.S. is going to quickly shift here to the growing season. The USDA is going to have their uh, planting intentions report that comes out at the end of March. That's going to be a big market signal uh, about what producers are planning on planting. Of course, planting season is around the corner. Not a lot of field work going on at this point. So on the one hand, we have all the streams are full of ponds. The reservoirs are full, and so if it turns off to be an above-average wetness, we could see some planting pickups, and that uh, would be priced in the markets as well. Of course, uh, you're always—I'm uh, always reminded of a, of a quote that a neighbor always said: "You're uh, three days away from a flood and ten days away from a drought." So, uh, weather will change and can change rapidly, uh, and producers are uh, getting into that growing season window. We'll see what. Uh, the next few months have before. Well, we're going to sit back and, and wait and see. And uh, D- David, if uh, folks want to know more about the work that you're doing and, and follow those blog posts, where can they go to see those? Uh, our website is Agricultural Economic Insights, and you can reach us at aei.ag or aei.ag. And uh, we share a weekly article. comes out usually every Monday morning, uh, depending on holiday schedules. But uh, this week's post looks at the things that we just talked about. There's even a video at the bottom you can see uh, as we talk a little bit more in depth about what the Federal Reserve's been doing and how that impacts the outlook for the macro economy. But um, you're welcome to uh, check that out. You can sign up for a free weekly email to get that sent directly to your inbox. And David and Brent Gloy do a great job of keeping their finger on the pulse of everything going in the ag markets. And David, I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk with us about this. And uh, we will check back here sometime in the next quarter. And hopefully we'll have some better news to talk about. I'm looking forward to that, Brent. You know, in difficult moments, a little levity can be a good thing. And this week's mental break comes from a friend of the show, singer-songwriter Scott Southworth, who penned and recorded a little ode to COVID-19 to lighten the mood a bit. I hope you'll enjoy it. Where it began I heard it first came from China But now it's everywhere we go So here we are Stuck here inside our houses For how long will no one really knows Hands
look at my wife She's looking right back at me We've run out of anything to see That look in her eyes I know just what she's wishing That I was Matthew McConaughey Scott Southworth with his ode to COVID-19. And now we're going to switch gears all together and head to Hank Snow's iconic Rainbow Ranch in Madison, Tennessee to hear from legendary Nashville songwriter Bobby Tomberlin. He was on the show last fall and I enjoyed our chat so much I wanted to have him back to be a part of it again. He's been working a lot with up-and-coming artist Sam Williams, the son of Hank Williams Jr., as well as other members of the Williams family. He's also been working with other up-and-coming artists around Nashville and turning out some great traditional country music. I hope you'll enjoy our time with Bobby Tomberlin. Bobby, how you doing, man? Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Rainbow Ranch. <laughs> I love it. Doing my Hank Snow imitation. <laughs> no, thank you so much for having me. and. It's great to see you again, and yes, it's sir. great to be at the Rainbow Ranch. Now, I know, Bobby, uh, w- when we set this one up, we've been doing all these at the Ernest Tub Record Shop, and they are still our presenting sponsor and a great supporter. But, uh, uh, you know, we had the opportunity to come out here to this legendary property and, and do this. Uh, you were the first guy I thought of. You, you, you've you hosted some events out here and ha- have a really strong kind of kindred connection to this property. So, man, it, it didn't feel right for me to do one of these and not have you through here. Oh, well, thank you so much. I do love this property, and I have uh, I have hosted like four guitar pools here where we've had like singers and songwriters come out, and just like the old days, you know, yeah. like they would gather over here in Madison. I've heard these great stories of Ernest Tubb and Red Foley, Moon mm-hmm. Mulligan, a lot of people playing music here at this house. So, I, you know, some of these events, we've had Mo Pitney, um, God, Bobby Bear, Bill Anderson, Lori Morgan, Jeannie Seeley, John Snyder. It's just been been a lot of fun. A lot. Linda Davis. We just had a little get together back uh, 
in uh, December, and Linda came out with her husband, Lang, and Hillary Williams, Hank Jr.'s very talented daughter, and uh, just a fun, fun night. So uh, in the dining room of this house, there's a uh, a little plaque on the wall that says, if these walls could talk. <laughs> Man, can, can you, you imagine? imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine so much history? And, you know, Porter Wagner's couch is here now. Wow. And um, a little studio down here and just, yeah, amazing history. I mean, in the room where we're at right now, you know, there's a piano. And to think Elvis Presley played that piano. Hmm. Moon Mulligan. <laughs> it's just, it, it, it's incredible. And one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about doing this show and having guys like you on the show is the fact that I see a whole generation uh, coming up now that, uh, you know, and I don't hold it against them. They may, maybe have not had any exposure to it, but they just don't grasp that. They don't grasp that historical significance. And uh, to, to me, you know, and I don't want to put it on par with the other big events in, in world history or U.S. history, but uh, I mean, this is history. And, uh, you know, if you're going to be in in the country music genre, to not have a sense of appreciation of where this genre has come from, I think, is uh, it's not good, man. So we, we, we got to educate know, people. You know, I'm proud that. to say that a lot of the younger singer-songwriters I've been working with lately, mm-hmm. have they're really interested. Mm-hmm. I worked with a guy today by the name of Ryan Larkins, and you will be hearing from Ryan in the future, and he is so hungry, mm-hmm. you know, to be educated on the country music history. He does a lot of research himself, and you know, and then people like Mo Pitney, mm-hmm. and uh, I wrote with a guy yesterday, Drake Milligan, and... Uh, Again, just loves Buck Owens. And mm. So I'm seeing a lot more of that, and boy, I'm loving it. Uh-huh. I'm loving that. I think there there are more and more of them, but I think it's incumbent upon us oh, knowing that we history, have to share to, to, to be able to, uh, to to kind of open up places like this, like some of the artists that uh, you know, pretty much everybody that we brought in here had never been in here. Right. Uh, they know of Hank Snow on the periphery or something, or maybe know a little bit about him, but really did not have that sense of his place in the history of this music. I interviewed him when I was in radio. Oh man, what was that like? You know what? He wouldn't grant an interview for the longest amount of time, but he would host this benefit, you know, uh, at the Grand Ole Opry House every year. You know, this, uh, I can't remember exactly what it was called, but it was to benefit abused children. Mm -hmm. And because he was abused, Mm -hmm. you know, at an early age and was very open about that Mm -hmm. in his book and on some TV shows. But anyway, when it came time for that event, his secretary called me and she said, Mr. Snow will be glad to do an interview to promote this show only. (laughs) And I respected that, but I did an interview and he was kind. And then he called back the next day and wanted to do another one to promote the show. And I met Hank at the Opry on a few occasions and was always kind. As you've gotten a chance to uh, be around uh, Hank and a lot of the people uh, who knew him, what are the things that stand out uh, about him uh, that you've heard through some of these stories that have been passed down to you? About Hank Snow? Yes. Uh, Well, very much a perfectionist in the studio, I've heard. Um, You know, really a good guitar player. A lot of people don't realize what a great guitarist, but he actually recorded two albums with Chet Atkins. Mm-hmm. And we know Chet wouldn't be doing a, mm-hmm. you know, a duo album with someone, uh, you know, a 
get you know unless they were really good. Yeah. But uh, another thing with Hank Snow, I knew an engineer by the name of Jim Malloy who engineered a lot of his records, and he said you could understand every syllable that he would sing, mm-hmm. and just really, he was just. Uh, you know, just love the music and evidently just loved it until he left this world. Mm-hmm. Took it very serious. From what I've heard, took it just as serious, you know, toward the end as he did uh-huh. in the beginning. It's kind of funny you bring that up about the syllables because that's a, a, a challenge I have with some of the newer music uh, that I have to go back and, and Google uh, some of the lyric mm. sheets on some of these songs after you, you've heard them two or three times. You're like, what did they just say? What, what That's interesting. What did they say? So to find somebody who's that big uh, of a stickler for detail that, that they want you to, to to be able to to understand what they're saying, to be able to communicate that clearly through your artistry, I think is really an important thing, kind of a lost art in some circles. I mean, God, I'm just sitting here, forgive me. I'm just kind of, I've been in this place several times, and I'm just kind of having a little in awe moment, you <laughs> know, just actually having an interview in this yeah. room that was the living room, Yeah, you know, where he would watch Matlock. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's easy to do. I know we got that at the Ernest Tubb record shop, sitting there looking at all those portraits of Hank Williams and Ernest Tubb and Loretta Lynn, and here we've got Hank and Audrey uh, looking over our shoulder. Staring right at us. And then we've got the uh, uh, we've got the singing ranger over here. A bunch of beautiful big portraits of of him and his legendary horse Shawnee, the Wonder Horse. This uh, portrait of Hank and Audrey Williams. This really hits home with me today because I attended a very special memorial show down at the Hank Williams Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, on New Year's Day. I rode down there with. Uh, Hank Jr.'s youngest son, Sam Williams, he's 22 years old, and he had never been to his granddad's grave or to the museum. Mm. And boy, what a trip that was. Mm, I imagine. That was special, such a special time. Uh-huh. What, uh, what, what, what kind of emotions did that evoke for him? Well, Hank Williams really became just a real man to Sam, I think. I mean, I hate speaking for him, but sure. that's what I witnessed. And it wasn't like, okay, it's not just, he's not just a statue in the Country Music Hall of Fame now. Yeah. I mean, here are the, here's the shoe shine kit that Hank Sr. used when he was a teenager hmm. to make some extra money. Wow. Uh, you know, here are some other, you know, belongings from that era when Hank Sr. was just a kid before any hit songs. And there you are walking the streets of Montgomery, you know, where he shined those shoes, where he sold peanuts, where he took guitar lessons from T-Tot, the old blues singer. Uh And, you know, then you see the car that he passed away in. Then you see the grave. And very emotional, very emotional trip. Um, Very special. I was honored to to be there. We sang a few songs. And um, I'll never forget that, uh, that trip. Man. We talked about last time about, uh, you know, some of your musical background and some of your songwriting. One thing that I don't think we got into as much is some of your songwriting influences and who are some of the people along the way, not just early in your career, but still today that you really study and, and, you know, derive some sort of uh, uh, inspiration from. Well, no doubt. Hank Williams was the first inspiration because where I'm from, 
you know, 20-something miles from where he was born and raised. So, of course, I think I mentioned it on the show last time, uh, at a very early age, everywhere I went, you know, someone was telling me, oh, Hank Williams played here. Hank Williams played at the country school. Well, I just started uh, really listening to his music, and not just the hit songs, but Luke the Drifter, Mm. a lot of the dark songs. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was really an inspiration to me. And uh, some of the other people, you know, just off the top of my head, um, Merle Haggard, of course, uh, Tom T. Hall, really influenced by his storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Bobby Braddock, I love a lot of his songs. But I'm just trying to think as a child, as a teenager, who are some of the other people that influenced me a lot. Uh, and Hank Jr., you know, a lot of people don't realize what a great songwriter Hank Jr. is, too. You know, you just hear a lot of the, the Dixie songs, which sure. are great, but there's some really great songs hidden on some of those albums. But, yeah. You know, uh, what inspired me with people like Hank Sr., Jr., Merle Haggard, Tom T. Hall is the honesty, mm-hmm. just the honesty in the lyrics. They weren't just out trying to... It wasn't like a song factory. They didn't even write if they didn't really feel it. Sure. There were no appointments. Yeah. Setting up appointments. Yeah. So as you uh, you know alluded to earlier, working with younger artists, how much do you focus on trying to bring a lot of that storytelling aspect of it back to well, the music? Today, I definitely wrote a story song with this uh, young artist by the name of Ryan Larkins and... And uh, the same with Mo Pitney. I write with him a lot, and there's a lot of storytelling in the songs that we write. Bill Anderson's another one oh, that yeah, I always that sure. he was an influence, and of course we're really good friends, and we've written a lot of songs and had some, some success together. Some of Bill's songs, man, he would really go um, into some territory that you would no one else would, mm-hmm. like the cold hard facts of life, the yeah. Porter Wagoner hit, yeah. Um, but but as far as a lot of the new artists and songwriters, uh, yeah, a lot of them that I work with, they're open to that. Now, you know, I don't want to go into a room and just write, you know, about going down to the river and how many beers we trucks and whiskey. I'm not sh- knocking that, but yeah. I mean, there's enough people writing that. I don't need to do that. I don't do that very well. Yeah, formulaic is not your style. And you had a a chance since we've last talked to uh, guest host. Uh, Midnight Jamboree, the Ernest Tubb Midnight Jamboree. That was a big deal, big deal for me, because um, I really uh, I listened to the Midnight Jamboree as a kid, and I remember Ernest Tubb on the Jamboree. I remember one night Loretto was on, and and uh, to get to host that. I mean, I had been on the show before, but that was uh, I was very honored, mm-hmm. very humbled. Yeah. Where so many greats have been. And you brought Sam out that night, and also our friend Aaron Enderlin. That's right. On and both did just an incredible job. Oh, so good. Mm-hmm. So good. And, um, yeah, that was a special treat. And just, I don't know, man, I'm in awe. I, again, I use the <laughs> the words in awe, but I really am. I'm at a point, I look back now, and I can't even believe half the things that I've been blessed to do. And um, just so thankful for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, because... I've loved this music from, you know, as long as I can remember mm-hmm. and getting to write with some of the people that I have, have written with and and getting to share the stage with someone even like Sam, who's, 
you know, continuing that beautiful tradition that his granddad started years ago. It's huge for me. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not about a paycheck. This isn't about, you know, positions on the charts. It's mm-hmm. about really loving, loving this music we call country. Yeah, I love it, man. And there's nobody carrying that torch better than you are and Thank some of the guys that you're working with and, and gals. And man, I love it. And you, you, you're certainly welcome to come back here and talk anytime you want to. Talking about carrying the tradition, you definitely do that. And I've watched a lot of your shows. And um, I don't know, man, we're, we're blessed to have people like you yeah, doing what right. you're well, doing. I appreciate it. It's just it's a labor of love. I know it is. It really is. I know it is. You know, sometimes I don't know quite uh, how I found myself in this spot and really loving it like I do. But No, that's how. You You, listen to the songs. That's why you're here, because you really love it. Bart Herbison, and I've told this many times, too, he's over at the Nashville Songwriters Association, and he told me a couple of years ago, he was like, Bobby, you love the music so much, and it loves you back. So I think it's just loving you back. Yeah, yeah. I I, I do love it, man. And the more I love it, the more I dig into it. Yeah, I'm sure you do the same thing, you know. Try to connect those dots and dig deeper and find those connections. I still get excited just driving down the road listening to new music and also just digging into old Bobby Bear albums or yeah. Haggard albums. I mean, I'm still like a kid. I still have that just that, the passion. It's just as it's strong as ever. Yeah. Well, Isn't it nice to be able to say that? It is. It is. Well, I know for me, a lot of it was kind of learning a lot of those artists through, you know, just picking up compilation albums of, you know, some of their greatest hits. But then to take that a step further and then to dig deeper into the catalog and then start to, you know, pull back the curtain on some of the stuff that you hadn't heard that was further down the album. You know who I met? I did a show. I was a part of the Texas Country Music Hall of Fame show in Carthage in August. I met Jeannie C. Riley. Have you ever uh, interviewed her? I have not, but would love to. Yeah, and, and she and her husband came to visit uh, her da- their daughter back in a oh, couple of weeks ago. And we um, had lunch, and it ended up being a five-hour lunch. Oh, wow. And it was just amazing, you know. Harper Valley PTA, one minute, you know, someone who just, well, I want to be a singer and then record a song like that. And then headlining shows (laughs) with Merle Haggard and Glenn Campbell on every show you can imagine from Bob Hope to Johnny Carson. And that was, I don't know, that was quite a little visit. And I'm still thinking about a lot of those stories. But she would be a great one sometimes when she's here for you to have on your show. Get that lined up one of these days. I would love to catch a lot of these legends here because, unfortunately, a lot of them aren't going to be around a whole lot longer. Oh, I know. So we want to make sure that we... uh, you know, record as much of that oral history as we can while it's still there. That's true. I think it's so, so important to carry that forward. But Bobby, man, I really appreciate you taking the time to come back and join us. On Thank this. you for having me again, man. You're welcome back anytime. And we're going to mic you up and uh, let folks hear some more from you. All right. I've got so many great uh, responses from that last uh, visit you did that, uh, man, we want to give them some more of that great music. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Bobby Tomberlin, singer-songwriter here in Nashville, and it's so good to be here at the Hank Snow Rainbow Ranch. I'm going to kick off my little segment with a song I wrote with the legendary Bobby Bear, who's actually been here at the ranch, and a guy by the name of Terry Faust. Terry Faust takes care of Hank and Audrey Williams' grave down in Montgomery, and I was down there one day, and 
a beautiful day, the train passing by, and, and then I hear a voice, and it was Terry saying, man, I've got a great song idea. And at the time, I'm thinking, oh, I don't want to write a song or think about a song. But he shared with me what he had, and I'm like, I would love to write on this song. So I headed back to I-65 to Nashville, and it just so happens I was writing with Bobby Bear the next day, and I shared it with Bobby, and he loved it too, and we finished it. It's simply called The Songwriter. Well, I drove into Nashville with a sack of songs I wrote. Parked the car, walked in a bar not far from Music Row. Said a poet who's in the Hall of Fame. I knew the words to all of his songs, and I even knew his name. He said, Now I have gold and platinum hanging on every wall. You wouldn't believe the hell I went through. left home you think you want to be a songwriter like me but you don't he said man I was really something in my prime I had three songs in the top ten at the same time careful what you wish for you may get what you want you think you want to be a songwriter like me but you don't he said now I made a ton of money but it went to my ex-wives and the rest flew out the window when the IRS arrived when you lose your home and all your songs, you'll find what you're made of. And son, by looking in your eyes, you ain't crazy enough. So go home to your family and leave guys like me alone. You think you want to be a songwriter, but you don't. He said, man, I was really something in my friends they've all drifted off and I'm down to my last dime be careful what you wish for you may get what you want you think you want to be a songwriter like me
funny, I, I'm on the board of the Nashville Songwriters Association and Bart Herbison had me come in one day and play for a whole you know, crop of new songwriters that had just moved to town and I played that song and I thought, oops, maybe that's not the one to be playing for some brand new writers, but all in fun, all in fun. Well, a few uh, months ago, you know, on Instagram and Facebook, you have those, you know, Facebook memories and there was a Facebook memory of me singing with Loretta Lynn about three and a half years ago at her ranch. It was a Conway Twitty tribute show and she asked me, to sing Lead Me On, one of the Conway Loretta hit duets. And, and that was just one of the most amazing moments I've ever experienced. And when I saw that picture, it's like I still couldn't believe I did that. And I started thinking about a lot of the things that I've been blessed to do, and this song just kind of fell out. And every line is true. Bear, 
heard Phil Everly sing Dream in his living room Was with Eddie Arnold in his last days Played guitar on the Opry stage I could feel the spirit of Hank Williams in that room I've given my heart and soul to Yes, I've lived country music Yes, I've lived country music And today we're at the Hank Snow Rainbow Ranch And we're still living country music away from my song, songs that I've been a part of, and I want to sing a Hank Williams song. I did this the last time I was on the show, and it just feels right here at the Hank Snow Rainbow Ranch, knowing that Hank Williams came here a few times, and of course Hank and Audrey, they're looking at me, they're over there on the wall, so I'm going to do you maybe my favorite Hank Williams song, it's a gospel song. People steal, they cheat and lie For wealth and what it will buy But don't they know on the judgment day
of Bobby Tomberlin. Make sure you check out his music at bobbytomberlinmusic.com. And while you're out there on the internet, if you're in the market for farm equipment, make sure you head on over to fastline.com. Check out the equipment locator with the price comparison tool featuring the Iron Average powered by Iron Solutions. And while you're on the website, don't forget to sign up to receive the print catalog for your state or region. Even through this pandemic, the Fastline catalog is still being delivered to your mailbox. And if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Fastline Fast Track podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or iHeartRadio. Also, be sure to follow Fastline Fast Track on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube, and add our Spotify playlist to your library for music from past, current, and upcoming guests of the show. Well, we'll keep you up to date on the latest information on how COVID-19 is affecting the agriculture industry. Until next week, it's Brent Adams saying y'all come back. And bring along a friend. You've been listening to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group. To learn more about Fast Line's customer focused marketing solutions, visit FastLineMediaGroup.com and check out our brand websites FastLine.com, BigAg.com, and PinkTractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at Brent.Adams at FastLine.com. Something like that.